0: Greetings and salutations on this 26th of December, or January, rather, 2024. It is uh, early where I'm at, but I see that we have people checking in from Ireland and even the Philippines and elsewhere, So and New Zealand, so good day to all of you, wherever you may be. A couple of interesting thought pieces have shown up in the last few days in Catholic news outlets, um, I will give a shout out here to Kennedy Hall, who gave a full recording of one of the things I'll go over. So I'm not going to go over the full thing here. He's, I'm not going to just duplicate his labor. But if you want to, I suggest checking out Kennedy Hall's channel for his uh, coverage of this first article we're going to talk about here, which came to us from uh, 1 Peter 5. And it's by Henry Sear. Yes, that's how I heard him pronounce his own name in his own recording in a speech he gave that was put up in podcast form. This was put up just a couple of days ago on 1 Peter 5. It's sort of a follow-up to the last time I spoke about Henry Sear, who was the author of a big expose book on Francis and his time in Argentina. In that previous time I talked about Henry Sear's work, he, he recounted how he was wrong about Francis, not wrong in that he was speaking in error or anything, but wrong in that he could not possibly have understood the depths of of the actual wicked things Francis had done in Argentina. So he was being too nice in his previous book on him. And so Henry Sear, who had been a very well regarded historian and member of very high profile Catholic organizations that have like an ancient history, he had written a book under a pen name, but eventually admitted to writing the book and was then subsequently canceled for his trouble. And again, Kennedy Hall went over this whole thing in full on his channel. So I'm going to let if you want to hear the whole thing instead of reading it, you can go check it out on his channel. I'm not going to duplicate his labor here. He's talking here, though, about, in his piece called The Great Betrayal. And when we talk about Francis betraying Catholicism, we're talking about the fundamental underlying ideas of Catholicism. The Not even the ideas, but you can call it anthropology. The anthropology, we can, we can define anthropology as the, study of human beings and society and their development. The anthropology of Catholicism is essentially how the church sees human dignity, human nature, and human society. And at the core of that is of course, marriage family and the rest of it and its relationships with the sacraments and sanctifying grace and the church. If you want you read the best encyclical ever written, probably on that relationship, you need only read Pius XII's, or Pius XI's rather, encyclical Casti Canubi, which was before Humanae Vitae, was Casti Canubi. And in fact, Casti Canubi conflicts with Humanae Vitae on the ends of marriage, where the ends of marriage in Casti Canubi are inverted by Humanae Vitae. Some people don't think that's a big deal, but it actually can be considered a very big deal. That's a subject for another time. Casti Canubi goes into a great de, de, uh, great detail about a moral framework for human anthropology really I mean, it sounds like a really dreadful dry subject but it's it's really not here we go into the matters of the flesh what their purpose is what hu- the purpose of human beings are funneled through the lens of holy matrimony the sacraments it's a lost concept today in the church because this betrayal we've seen as someone in the comments said, well, this betrayal began at Vatican II. i like, yes. And in the beginning of Vatican II, the whole point of that Pius XI was writing Casti Canubi in the 1930s is the modernist errors we see today predated the Council by a century. The popes just were combating those errors instead of embracing them, as they started to do with and after the Council. The Council was the inflection point when the modernists came to power and have held power ever since, including every pontiff. Since then, to some degree. An unpopular statement to make, I know, because some people have very fond memories of some of those pontiffs. But it is true. All you have to do is read their writings and compare them to the writings of their pre preconciliar predecessors, and you see that the problem as it is manifested. But Henry Sear really kind of spends a lot of time talking about the changes that led it to Casti Canubi in the society. How the, we'll call it the ladies' ideology, Okay we see just a really strident version of today in the world and in the church that has been condemned by the church, but people don't seem to care. We have the, you know, the consequences of the first world war and what that did to society. We have this sudden acceptance of the values of the French revolution in society and how those have found their way into the church. And Cassie Canubi is an attempt to undercut all of that by restoring things into a sacramental framework. So I'm going to quote Henry Seer here. He says, quote, Today, the moral framework that Pius XI expressed in Casti Canubi has become totally alien to the modern world. So far have we traveled on the neo-pagan road. But worse is the fact that alienation abounds among Catholics, too, both laity and clergy. The cause of this is the disintegration of Catholic philosophy provoked by the Second Vatican Council. It was glimpsed even in the documents of the council itself. The programmatic declaration of the council, Gaudium et spes, in its zeal to preach a quote modern message, thought it appropriate to urge the social progress of women and to speak as if the capitalistic regime of unfettered competition, even between uh, men and women, were the natural order of society. The breakdown became general in the environment that followed the closure of the council. In the priesthood and in the seminaries, an assumption spread that the rule of celibacy was about to be abolished, with dire repercussions on vocations and especially on the ethos of chastity in the clergy. Among the lady, there was a parallel assumption that the church's teaching on barriers to being fruitful and multiplying had been superseded and was soon going to be changed. When Pope Paul VI attempted to restate the traditional teaching in Humanae Vitae, he provoked a collapse of papal authority. His encyclical was, was met with immediate vituperation, and the sequel was widely ignored. These incidents in the disintegration of the whole Christian way of thinking— taught to regard a giornamento. So we'll pause here. A giornamento is essentially this state that was announced by John the 23rd that, and Paul the VI reiterated this, that the church was opening its windows, w- opening the windows of the church to the world to let some fresh air in, to learn things from the world that the church had to learn from the world. And a giornamento was the sort of permanent state of reflection and imp- of, and a permanent state of ongoing change, a permanent, ongoing revolution in the church. That is the, what adjornamento meant in that. So Henry Sears said, talks about aggiornamento here. He means this permanent state of change in the church that's gone on for 65 years now. Quote, taught to regard aggiornamento as the new rule of faith, meaning permanent change as the rule, new rule of faith, Catholics surrendered to that ideology of human nature. The laws of morality of the flesh became... To them, isolated prescriptions which they no longer understood because they had lost touch with their philosophical foundation. There is therefore no hope of teaching the modern generation to understand Christian morality unless they free themselves from the categories of the modern world and replace them with the perennial philosophy of the church. End quote. So what is this betrayal in the church? In our time, the there had, before Francis, there had been this like antagonism between the popes before him and the church before the council which was you have this permanent state of change but also this attempt to stay moored, despite in a permanent state of change with what the church had always been historically and what the church had always taught historically there's a hermeneutic of continuity that's where that comes into play you get this idea that the changes in the faith had to be understood and rooted in what the church always taught and in practice it was never the case in practice when ideas were implemented at the diocesan level, at the National Bishops Conference level, at your parish level, change more often than not, one out over the traditional teachings of the church. Hence why the uh, private sin, as Pius XII called it, that sin which something like 90% of men go to confession for regularly and something like 75 or 80% of women do on a regular basis. When you confess that, priests will often tell people it's not a big deal. Go receive communion anyway. Just say an act of reparation before you do. Do you understand where the con what the consequences of this are, what the church has always taught, has in practice, because practice or praxis, the fancy word for it, is really where the rubber meets the road. And we saw that with fiducia supplicants, a reiteration on paper of what the church has always taught about holy matrimony, but the practice tossed out the window, the, t- the practice not being the same as what the church teaches. And remember something about practice. What you actually do reflects what you actually believe. And when you, what you believe, what you say you believe conflicts with what you do, eventually what you do will win out every single time. This is a matter of basic morality. And this gets to sort of the false anthropology of the world. You see, the world tells us that we are essentially atomized individuals. It's a sort of like a solipsism. Solipsism is this philosophy, it's it's this philosophical error that basically tells you that the world revolves around you, that you're the only thing you know that can be verified to be real. So solipsism is essentially the world revolving revolves around you, a soft form of solipsism, as opposed to the absolute just ridiculous version of literally believing you're the only thing that's real. A lot of the world tells us today, essentially to live as if we are like a soft solipsist, meaning we believe the world revolves around us. The only thing that matters is our pursuit of self-interest, whether that's wealth, pleasure, the emphasis on the ego, what have you, that the, is the only thing that matters. In that understanding, the family plays no central role in the conception. Hence why family can be defined in any way we want. And we've seen this, with how they've changed the meaning of that word. And suddenly now you see how people who treat their pets as family, which is kind of odd and does not fit a Christian anthropology in the slightest. It doesn't fit a Christian moral framework at all. You see this with the expanding of your friends is to be considered into the family dynamic. Again, doesn't fit the traditional Christian worldview in the slightest. Not to say you shouldn't value your friends or your pets or whatever. You certainly should the church has always taught us about the family and what the family means, what the family unit is. And so instead we now see church officials adopting this false anthropology. And when we see that there's enormous consequences. So for instance, we see the Vatican and Vatican officials have expanded the concept of family to include the secular concepts of it. I There were stories that I passed over really talking about in the last few months about the Vatican and Vatican officials talking about, you know, this expanded notion of family, because by itself they were isolated and kind of cringy. but that was about it. It wasn't that big of a deal until you put it all together with fiducia supplicants, and this is where that doctrine comes in. Fiducia supplicants represents a false anthropology. It's specifically for those in irregular situations. Of course, the James Martin sin is part of that as well, obviously, and rightly people have focused on it, but the irregular situations the divorced and remarried, the, everybody covered by Morris Letizia which is what makes this document possible, are part of that false anthropology. And it's worth noting that it is this false anthropology that Francis has adopted with the help of Tuco Fernandez, who himself ghost wrote numerous writings of Francis, including at least a Morris Letizia but likely his handprints, fingerprints were all, all over there because we've learned recently that Fernandez has long been for, uh, Francis's personal theologian even when he wasn't the prefect for for the Dicastery, for the doctrine of the faith. So when talking about this anthropology, consider the words of Fulton Sheen, where he's talking here about the creed. Quote, we fit a creed to the way we live rather than the way we live to a creed. We suit religion to our actions rather than actions to religion. We try to keep religion on a speculative basis in order to avoid moral reproaches on our conduct. We sit at the piano of life and insist that every." Note we strike as right, because we struck it. We justify want of faith by saying, I don't go to church, but I am better than those who do. End quote. And that is the false anthropology of the world. That is the false anthropology that's in the church now. And I'll say in the church with quotes, because when we're talking about heresy, heresy separates you from the body of Christ. A manifest heretic, someone who is publicly a heretic, has removed themselves from the church. And therein lies the problem when you start talking about the legitimacy of various pontiffs and bishops and things is there's no process for it really figuring out formally and removing people from offices in the church. There's just no mechanism for it, but the teaching on heresy still stands. It's a mortal sin. One that if you are knowingly engaging in public heresy, you have removed yourself from the church. And the document is, as Henry Sears says in that article that I started with, manifestly heretical. It is manifestly heretical. Now, this false anthropology of the world rests on this concept of human dignity. I, I can never say this without laughing, but it is in, I believe, Gaudium et Spes, the Vatican II document that claims that we have a better understanding of human dignity now than any time in the church's history. Now, when you think about that for a second, better understanding, in the 1960s, about human dignity than any time in human history. In 1973, in the United States, a court case came down that showed that that was a lie. The, the events of the second half of the 20th century would show that was not true in the slightest. This was the bishops trying to basically say at the council that much of what came before we needed to be changed for this adjournamento process to bring it to, uh, to moral standards of the time, this better understanding of human dignity. And I'm bringing that up because Fernandez has assured us that he is now working on a document about human dignity. Fiducia supplicants is going to be built on with that document. We don't know what the contents are going to be yet. The chances that, they're, that it is orthodox, little o orthodox, are very slim. So be prepared for another document coming from him soon. They like to use Marian feast days to issue these kinds of documents. And the next Marian feast day is the end of next week, on the it's Candle Mass, February second, or also known as the Feast of the Presentation of the Virgin Mary, also known as the Feast of Our Lady of Buen Suceso de la Purificacion, the uh, Feast of Our Lady of the Good Event of the Purification. More commonly known in the English-speaking world as Our Lady of Good Success, which is a terrible translation for her name, and I encourage people to stop using it because when you read that the messages of that Marian apparition, Good Success doesn't figure anywhere into that. It's a very, it's very much Fatima-like in its messaging. Now, when we're talking about the concept of this false anthropology and this betrayal of Catholicism. We, there was an interesting piece published by Rate Chaley, and it's, but. A, by a priest who really kind of goes into some of the theology about this, and it's by a Father Serafino Lanzetta, and it's, his a piece is called On Fiducia Supplicants, Anonymous and Anomalous Blessings. This is interesting because what we're talking about here is the subjection of concepts to power. The concept here is human dignity, understood in the lens of the secular world, the the secular understanding of human dignity, which is, of course, in conflict with any Catholic notion of the dignity of people. But the Vatican II sense of it is much more closer to the secular sense. Power here is exercised to change the meaning of blessings, to make the imposition of the secular notion happen. So here's what the priest basically says. He says, quote, In an equivocal manner, these new blessings are de facto equated with sacramentals, but without defining them as such, giving the appearance of having created a neutral subcategory for the mere purpose of justifying a blessing of what cannot be blessed because objectively contrary to God and his creations. We are faced with blessings that are, quote, anonymous sacramentals, such as Rahner's anonymous Christians, meaning those who are Christians without knowing they are because Christian belongs not to grace, but to nature, which is already one with the grace of a level of knowledge. That The transition from being blessed, albeit a thematically to transcendentally, to being blessed thematically or categorically will come in time. When by then, thanks to the normal use of that will be made of these blessings, it will be penetrating the minds and hearts of Christians that one can also bless sin. Let's pause here. It's a fancy way of saying that we're going to have it basically hammered home repeatedly that Regardless of what the church has always said about such things, that we can bless those people who are in the situations. Again, the those who have broken their vows of holy matrimony, and you know, let the secular courts tear asunder what God has brought together, and then they go to the secular authorities to get a new, a new union. The church has always separated them from the sacraments, because they have violated the core of things, what the church has always taught about the permanency of matrimony. But we have changed the practice on this through uh, wide use of annulments for the council. I remember reading once that for the council, there was like only 50 annulments or something granted in like the 1930s or something in in all of the United States. That was a remarkably low number. That's probably what's granted in a week now in the typical diet, large diocese in the United States. But that practice and the practice of changing the practice to not coincide with what is taught anymore, that will eventually have an effect on the hearts and minds of Christians, that we can now bless sin. And be, because, again, we're talking about those who identify on a core level with the sins that they are attached to, that they have no intention of giving up the sins. We're not talking about people here who struggle with the sixth and ninth commandment. They, you know, look at stuff online they shouldn't be looking at and they engage in sins that go with that. And they do so repeatedly and they make frequent use of the confessional, but they still are struggling with those sins that they desperately want to overcome. And they are working on their spiritual lives to overcome. We're not talking about them because at the core level, they don't identify with their sins. They identify that their sins are important in their lives and they're trying to overcome They struggle with sin, making use of the graces offered by the church, and they desperately want to be separated from them, and they typically resent their sins being attached to them on a human dignity, human identity level. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about those who recognize that the church has said something was a sin, and they just don't care. They think the church is wrong. They think that the science of the day has told them that what they are going through is actually true, meaning the church has no authority, no moral authority to say these things. Begin to see the consequences of this. He, the priest calls this a basic kind of nominalism, a predominant characteristic of the times we live in. He says that quote, blessing is a mere flatus vocius. That is a word that does not say what it means, but expresses with the same apparent meaning another reality, namely the legitimization of irregular and double S types. Nominalism is a subject subjugation of concepts to power. What he's saying here is it's, The words, you change the meaning of words to make the words itself mean whatever it is you want them to mean. And we saw this with, you know, we're not blessing the couples, but the persons of the couple. Or we're blessing the couple, but not the union that by definition makes them the couple. You begin to see how this happens. that You change the meaning of words on a fundamental level so you can then reduce those words essentially to be nonsense. That means whatever you want it to mean. And that's what we're seeing here. See, the core of this evil anthropology that marks this betrayal of faith is that evil itself no longer exists, a very secular concept. We see in the secular world that the only evil that, which is, that exists now is that which prevents others from reaching their full self-fulfillment. In the church, the only evil that exists anymore officially, and I'll say in the church in quotes again here, and the only thing not worthy of mercy is rigidity, this clinging to the old faith, to the old moral standards of the faith. The priest in that Rorate Chele piece points to this as one dire consequence of the new anthropology in the church. Here he says, quote, What is the real problem at stake? With pleasant surprise, several episcopates, especially the peripheries, are declaring their clear rejection of the document. The emphasis is usually placed on their inability to bless James Martin types, most often forgetting irregular couples, and that is remarried divorcees, who, while still in a we'll call it the natural uh, union live in defiance of God's will expressed in the sacrament of matrimony. It is, after all, the same moral problem that unites the two categories of couples that now one now wishes to bless, with a gravity accentuated in the sin of the James Martin type. The openness to these blessings, or rather the definitive acceptance of objective and intrinsic sin in irregular and double S types, has its beginning in Morse Letitia published in, on 19th of March, 2016. Pause there. Amore's Letitia was published on the 19th of March, 2016. I'm going to check here in the chat to see if anybody knows what is such a big deal about that date. Anybody wanted to hazard a guess on what the March 19th, 2016 was? I'll come back in the check here in a moment. Continuing. It was with this apostolic exhortation by Pope Francis that the impetus was given. It is with it that the word end was written to intrinsic malum, that is, intrinsically uh, disordered sin, such as precisely the breaking of your marital vows and the James Martin sin. We all remember the sterile hermeneutical controversy surrounding that famous footnote, number 356, which subtly opened the door to the reception of the sacraments for irregular couples. Irregular then always an in inverted commas to mark its overcoming, but now without. The reception of the sacraments for these couples, albeit after a miraculous discernment, has since been confirmed by an official rescript of the Pope, including the Acta Apostolica Sedis in 2016, with a citation number there. With this new document, the discourse also includes double S types. This new footnote will feed into a more extensive and argued document tomorrow. The bishops have been silent at the outbreak of Amoris Laetitia, and with them, even some cardinals who now rightly act as a lion. But it is this document that must be respectfully criticized and urgently corrected in line with Veritatis' splendor. Therein lies the paradigm shift. Oddly enough, Fiducia Supplicants presents itself as a theological reflection based on the pastoral vision of Pope Francis, which implies a real development for what has been said about blessings in the magisterium in the official text of the church, a development there certainly is in the manner of self-referential circle. From a Morse Letizia to now, from irregular couples to James Martin types, after a great deal of work in various synods that preceded this last great and interminable one, that is, from Fernandez to Fernandez, end quote. Basically what he's saying is Fernandez is himself the instrument of this new anthropology in the church. This new, from like this new phase of this new post-conciliar anthropology in the church. And he then the priest then brilliantly goes on to link this all to the synod on synodality. And remember, these blessings are given in the name of pastoral considerations. That's key to understanding how synodality connects to this. Belief, meaning the Practice of the faith is overridden by a new practice of pastoral sensitivity. Synodality calls for this same setup by decentralizing decision making on doctrinal issues in the hands of the laity, often in local areas, guided by above from a pope who cannot override them. That's the takeaway from the false synod, and the coming synod will attempt to finish that work, meaning you're going to have a change in practice implemented through the laity, the worst catechized generation, possibly in history. Previous generation was considered the worst catechized, but now this generation is the worst catechized. You see the problem we're building here, putting their putting their understanding of human dignity as the guide stone for what is the doctrinal inherent uh, coherence of the faith. For so for those of you, Doctor Obvious, yep, people are noticing what um, March nineteenth was—the feast day of Saint Joseph. Do you understand why a promulgation of a marshallatitzi on the feast day of Saint Joseph is diabolical? I wish I'd known that before. I want to thank the priest who wrote that for pointing that out to us. I've done one video already on all the Pacamama related things the Vatican did and how those weirdly lined up with Marian feast days and with the, except for St. Francis of Assisi, of course. But then uh, you get Traditionus Custodus on the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and Amoris Laetitia on the Feast of St. Joseph. Again, this is the traditional Feast of St. Joseph, not St. Joseph the Worker, which is a post-conciliar addition to the liturgical calendar my audio is now clear. Well, I think my audio was clear, probably. um, Beforehand, I don't know, because that's the first I've seen anybody say anything about it, but I'm curious what you think about this. Do you see this, this new betrayal and what we're seeing going on this further implementing this pre this secular notion of human dignity as sort of the driving impetus between, uh, what we're seeing, all in the name of sort of a pastoral sensitivity. You see, of course, the formal teaching acknowledged in writing, but then the practice completely upends the the, the formal teaching. You, that's what these blessings are about. And it builds on Amoris Laetitia, and Amoris Laetitia itself builds on these statements about human dignity from Vatican II, and this, con- this concept of per- permanent, ongoing change in the church. We are so used to things in the church changing on a constant basis, as uh, Henry Sear said in that initial article that I, I quoted from, that when another change comes down the line, most of the time, it's not like, what, how can they change things? That's not our reaction anymore. It's all, oh, great. Let's see how bad this is going to be, because this has been going on for decades. It's just become so openly opposed to any understanding of the faith that we have had beforehand that people recognize it for what it is now, when beforehand at least there was this sort of hermeneutic of continuity attempt to try to put the two together. But it's worth remembering that in the aftermath of Traditionis Custodis, Francis let something slip, as did all of his sort of lieutenants in this. That the traditional liturgy, and by extension the traditional practices of the faith, no longer they no longer are compatible with the ecclesiology of the church. Ecclesiology is just a, the theology of the church, its being and its purpose, meaning the way w- the the way the faithful worshipped, going back to apostolic times, that developed organically from the times of the apostles to 1962, no longer was fitting with the church in the post-conciliar era, and that. On the hermeneutic of continuity, Francis never explicitly said the hermeneutic of continuity is gone, but he basically said the hermeneutic of continuity is gone. Any attempt to see things in any way other than in his, magis- his magisterial interpretation was now gone. And that's why you started seeing memes popping up everywhere of the hermeneutic of continuity, you know, the hermeneutic of continuity horse with the RIP on it. It's because even that was done away with. We now are living in the age of permanent aggiornamento. openly, this ongoing revolution in the church. I want to see what others are saying are in the the trap or in the live chat. We're seeing linguistic contortion of changing the meaning of words using this practice. Tradition means true and new means false. I mean, it's almost. I remember what I, there was a reason that I went a year going over um, St. Vincent of Larin's work, The Combinatory, there's a through line in that work. He's a doctor of the church and he wrote in a remarkably clear way that we are to reject new things in the faith, innovations. Some would say he would be opposed to the rosary, not so much. The Hail Mary prayer is right out of scripture and you can find prayers to Our Lady going back to the first century. We found evidence that there was prayers to Our Lady and to the saints in heaven in the first century. We mean, when he says new things, he means things that conflict with what the church teaches. Novelties. And Fiducia Supplicans, Amoris Laetitia, Gaudium et Spes. Some of these other things going back 60 years obviously conflict with the, with the faith. Tell me about Our Lady of Good Success Chaplet. Well, first, it's not Our Lady of Good Success. It's Our Lady of the Good Event of the Purification. I've got a lot of flack from English language tradi- semi-traditional outlets for... Calling her by her proper name, but it's only in the English world that we call her a Good Success. And I've seen people take that name and then try to use it as sort of like a Joel Osteen kind of Marian apparition. Uh keep feast in the can, uh, and why the candles in the feast of the presentation? I mean, it's candle mass is a. I'd have to go do some research on the on the candle mass stuff, but that's it's Our Lady of the Good uh, Our Lady of Good Success is or the good event of the purification. See so now I'm even doing it is coming up. That's the next Marian feast day. And that might be when they issue a document like that. I kind of doubt it, but it, because it's just so soon after fiducia supplicants, but you can see that. Catherine in the chat says, I worry about what the translation of the new missile coming out at the end of the year will be like, there have been some, some indications that you're going to see the removal of a, uh, of Benedict XVI's clarification of the words of consecration for the Novus Ordo. For those who aren't not aware, there was a very serious theological debate going on from the dawn of the new mass until 2007, 2008, something like that, where the, the it was becoming clear that the validity of the words of consecration were suspect to such a point, And you might think that, well, that's, how can anybody think, think that? Well, Apparently, Benedict took this issue seriously enough that he issued new words of consecration that were actually um, unequivocally valid. (laughs) So, again, this was uh, part of the problem with this. We live in a good day. We live in a day where good is called evil and evil good. And that's kind of this false anthropology of the world that we were talking about earlier, where evil is called good and good is called evil. Uh, Damien, I'm pretty sure the SSPX, it's lay associations that own most of their properties. Yes, the SSPX have some of their own properties, but it's, uh, there's, there are some lay associations that own those properties, which actually works to the benefit of the society to keep them even more protected in case somebody tries to come after them. Um, let's see. Job says invalid. Uh, when it comes to that new mass, the the old consecration prayers, there, there was a debate whether that they were valid in the slightest or not. Benedict took care of it. So I don't view the new mass as being invalid and per se. Do I listen to and follow father Ripperger? Um, I have, it's been a while since I've listened to him. Uh, Follow depends what you mean by that. uh damien i will respectfully disagree i do take issue with the title of our lady of good success because it does conflict with literally the the wishes of the people of the sisters who who maintain that order who uh, that the actual facilities there in quito ecuador anthony abbott is spreading fake news i have no guest on monday so i don't know what you're talking about yeah on his show he was spreading some rumor that i'm having a Hollywood person on my channel on Monday I will be doing a, a news thing Monday morning almost certainly <sighs> dr obvious says use the pre-55 missile for good Friday prayers well if you can my fssp parish does not uh some do we have any final comments or thoughts in the chat because we have uh, this anth this false anthropology topic in the church is pretty complicated and I tried to present it in the just an accessible way for people as best as I could, but it is a complicated topic. Anthony Abbott says he was not spreading the rumor. Someone in the chat said that. Well, that person in the chat was just making stuff up. Sort of like the vegano got consecrated by Williamson's stuff until Vegano says it himself. Don't take it. Don't 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 take it from what regardless of the source, unless it's from Vegano. Okay. <laughs> Do I think someone who owns five to, what? Okay. (laughs) All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in today. Um, Make sure to say prayers for Cardinal Fernandez today, (laughs) since we were riffing on him a little bit. And I have a uh, We Were Warned video going live here in just about 15 minutes. So as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.